So, where we are, um, we are nearing um, the end of Elisha's life, as I mentioned. And uh, the names, we have a lot of names now. The names highlighted in yellow and orange are the names of those that encompass the time frame we're going to be looking at. This is going to be a larger section of text, so there's going to be more generalizing in some of these sections. Uh, We'll focus on a few sections, but generalize many more. Um, But Jehoram, this first king in Israel in yellow, he's he's been the reigning king since 2 Kings chapter 2. He's been the king that has been involved in literally everything in Elisha's life that we've been looking at uh, since chapter 2. And chapter 8 really is God's one last effort to reach him. Um, And then what precedes that is judgments that have been lingering since the days of Elijah. And we'll end looking at Jehoash, uh, the grandson of Jehu, and some of the things that Elisha does in interacting with uh, Joash as well. Um, And this is a very bittersweet section. Um, There's very positive, encouraging things about how Elisha's life ends, but there's also very very sad things, and I think there's, there's really amazing lessons to take, especially when we kind of encompass the overall frame of time that we've been looking at, all the work and the energy that has been invested uh, by these prophets, Elijah and Elisha, and also just knowing that that effort was not wasted. Um, we're still reading about these things and gaining the benefit from having seen the endurance of these prophets in these amazing ways. So... We're not only seeing Elijah and Elisha's ministries coming to an end, we're also seeing the dynasty of Ahab coming to an end as well. The arrows are where the events in this section happen. So on the farthest right arrow is Ramoth-Gilead, which is a a constant area of conflict. You notice it's right on the border of the Arameans or the Syrians, and then you've got Israel, and it's technically Israel's territory, but the Arameans are constantly trying to push in aggressively to retake that territory. And then you have uh, Samaria. Uh, we'll see some events happen there in Jezreel, where we'll see uh, Jehu go to judge the house of Ahab and begin uh, the annihilation of, ah- of Ahab's house. Um, so we'll get into chapter 8, 1 through 6. Since this is a larger section of text we're looking at, I'll just kind of be scattering brief points throughout the text. We're not going to be doing an end section looking at principles and applications. I'm more just going to focus on the story for this lesson since it is such a large section. So let's start with chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. 2 Kings chapter 8, 1 through 6. And this is where we see um, God remembering mercy here. Now, as Elisha spoke to the woman whose son he had restored to life, saying, Arise and go with your household, and sojourn wherever you can sojourn, for the Lord has called for a famine, and it will even come on the land for seven years. So the woman arose and did according to the word of the man of God, and she went with her household and sojourned in the land of the Philistines seven years. The end of seven years, the woman returned from the land of the Philistines, and she went out to appeal to the king for her house and for her field. Now the king was talking with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Please relate to me all the great things that Elisha has done. As he was relating to the king how he had restored to life the one who is dead, 
Behold, the woman whose son he had restored to life appealed to the king for her house and for her field. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman, and this is her son, whom Elisha restored to life. When the king asked the woman, she related it to him. So the king appointed for her a certain officer, saying, Restore all that was hers and all the produce of the field from the day that she was left, that the day that she left the land, even until now. Something kind of interesting, um, chapter six and seven. The last major event we looked at was also, in a sense, a famine. Remember, the Arameans were besieging Samaria, and things got so bad. You had, remember, the dove's dung and the donkey's head. Um, Apparently, I I really said that a lot in that lesson, so you should really remember that. Um, But the focus was on how bad the situation was in Samaria, whereas it's interesting, this famine is like one of the longest famines in the entire Bible. Seven years is an astonishing amount of time for a famine to occur. So this is, this is, in fact, exactly double the amount of time as the first famine in Elijah's ministry. You remember that Elijah called on a famine and then it ended with the uh, showdown on Mount Carmel. That was a three-and-a-half-year famine. And you remember Ahab was like trying to salvage anything he could find to save the livestock from completely dying in three-and-a-half years. This is seven years I think it's interesting that with a seven-year famine, there is no emphasis at all on how bad the condition of the land was or how depraved the conditions of the people were. The emphasis is, in fact, instead on the Shunammite woman and Gehazi. And I think that's, that's fascinating. So remember in the last famine with Samaria, it was lepers who ended up saving the day. We made some points of application from that. You had these people who were on the outside, people who were outcasts. They were the ones actually bringing good news. It's interesting here, it's kind of the same thing. You have another famine, and you have another leper also bringing good news to the king in the same way the other lepers did. So there's some interesting parallels involved in this. So remember that the, the people who are here, Gehazi is from 2 Kings chapter 5. You had Gehazi, who was the servant of Elisha when Naaman had been healed of his leprosy. But because of Gehazi's greed in secretly going and lying to Naaman afterwards, Gehazi was cursed with Naaman's leprosy for the rest of his life. So Gehazi is a leper, it seems, when this happened, if this is chronological, which it seems like it is. Um, And then you have this woman whose son was raised from the dead. Remember, that's in 2 Kings chapter 4. You have this Shunammite woman who showed kindness to Elisha. Uh, Elisha actually asked Gehazi what could be done for the woman, and Gehazi said she had no son, but she was old. So then Elisha promises that she'll have a son, and she does. Later in life, though, the son ends up dying from getting sick. So the woman goes to Elisha to appeal to him for her son, and Elisha raises him from the dead. So these, these are the characters involved here. And remember, this is the same king reigning when all of these things happened. And I think as far as God's last effort to try to reach the king, you know, God has tried to do so many different things to reach the king of Israel. He's exhausted one option after another. And I just imagine, like, what's left? Like, what what more can be done? Well, he may not know about this woman. Think about the providence and care involved in these circumstances. The woman leaves Israel to the land of the Philistines the entire time this famine is happening. And it seems at the time when the land is now being rejuvenated, she comes back to the king and it just 
so happens that the king has called Gehazian to ask Gehazi to recount to him all the great things that Elisha has done. And not only that, in verse 5, just see the providence involved in this. I don't think this is one of those things where like, wow, that's lucky. It's really just kind of great happenstance. It's the providence. As the words are coming out of Gehazi's mouth, relating that this woman's son had been risen from the dead, when it's the nation itself that needs rejuvenation and needs to be revitalized and revived, in comes this woman to appeal to, to the king for her land. And as she comes in, Gehazi says, look, there she is, and her son. And she related the king the things that had happened to her personally. One thing about this, just as a brief point of application, you know, this king was a very stubborn person. Um, we're going to see in the next events, I mean, not even this moved him to repentance. He was a very stubborn person. But this famine made it so that he was at least willing to listen. You might be around people at work or at school. You may have friends or family, people who are very stubborn, people who show no signs of repentance, and it seems like it's not even worthwhile to engage with them. But did you know that God may need you in their lives showing them kindness so that if they ever go through a famine, in a sense, they know that they can call on you to hear the works of God. That they know that God has had a very real impact in your life. And you may be surprised at times, the same people who refuse to believe that there's any kind of validity at all in this business about Jesus and resurrection and heaven, that when their lives plummet, how valid Jesus can then become to them, to those who they've seen have been impacted in very real and very living ways by Jesus' life, right? So the question is, are you the kind of person that can be called on? And why is it that Elisha could be called on, in a sense, for his works? You know, Elijah wasn't here, but it was Gehazi. It's because Elisha had been faithfully serving God consistently. I think one of the most powerful tools of evangelism is not just being you know, silence and, and just kind of blending in with the culture, but consistently living a life of holiness that reflects God's work clearly, not just in works, but Elisha was also in word somebody who was unashamed of his association with God. And because of that unashamed consistency, even the suffering he had to undergo, here it's all worth it. Because this stubborn king knows that there's a life in his midst that has been lived in service to God, right? So, and you look at how this woman was rewarded, right? So in verse 6, I think it's interesting, even though they had just had this great famine, notice at the end of verse 6, restore all that was hers and all the produce of the field from the day that she left the land even until now. Do you think this stubborn king was more compassionate than God? Do you think God would withhold restoration from his people if they really sought it? You know what this tells me? The reason why Israel never found true restoration is because they never actually returned to God. And that if they would have ever returned to God to really seek what was rightfully theirs, their relationship with God, and even the land 
that belonged to them, that kept getting famine after famine because of their unfaithfulness, God could restore everything like new. So if this wicked king was willing to be so generous, how much more generous is God willing to be, right? Um, One last thing. Is Joram's kindness to this woman the same thing as repentance? And I think this is one of the saddest things about this story. Is Joram's kind deed to this woman, is him listening to the acts of Elisha, is that the same thing as repentance? It's really not. Can you imagine if somebody has wronged you deeply and they've, they've invested themselves into that wrong, they've never stopped that wrong. It's not just one thing that's been done, it's been a continuous process of one thing after another. And then they start doing kind things to your friends. But they won't talk to you, they won't reconcile to you, they won't tell you they're sorry, but they'll do nice things to people you know. You know, there's a lot of ways where that's actually almost like worse. It's almost like, there's a strange way where it's almost like mocking you. Because you're right there, right? So there's some ways where, although on the surface this seems good, this is still not repentance. Good deeds are not a substitute for reconciling with God. Good deeds cannot substitute reconciling any relationship. The king still needed to reconcile himself to God, and that is exactly what he failed to do. And so with this, is God a slave? Is he obligated that every time the king shows some ember of interest, is God enslaved to them to constantly delay his wrath, to never show himself serious about the promises he had made? Because you know in 1 Kings 19, what Elisha is about to do in appointing Hazael, in a sense, king of Aram, and then appointing Jehu, did you know that God told Elijah to do that back in 1 Kings 19? So if sin already puts us on borrowed time, the kings of Israel were like on borrowed, borrowed, borrowed time. I mean, they were literally existing by the threads of mercy being afforded to them for decades. And this is it? What we find out here is God is not to be played with. God is not our slave to have to follow our casual interest in his works as long as we'll show him some playful ambition. God is king. And it's us who need to learn to take him seriously rather than him who's a slave to us as we play with taking him seriously. So verses 7 through 13 This is where we see God remembering his wrath. And the appeal in this is simply to recognize the seriousness of God's promise of annihilation. Then Elisha came to Damascus. Now Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, was sick, and it was told him, saying, The man of God has come here. Remember, this is the king of Damascus whose servant Naaman had been healed of leprosy. right? So the king is very aware of Elisha, very aware of what Elisha is capable of, So the king said to Hazael, take a gift in your hand and go out to meet the man of God and inquire of the Lord by him, saying, will I recover from this sickness? So Hazael went out to meet him and took a gift in his hand, even every kind of good thing of Damascus, 40 camel loads. And he came and stood before him and said, your son, Ben-Hadad, king of Aram, has sent me to you, saying, will I recover from this sickness? Then Elisha said to him, go, say to him, you will surely recover, but 
the Lord has shown me that he will certainly die. He fixed his gaze steadily on him until he was ashamed, and the man of God wept. Isaiah said, Why does my Lord weep? Then he answered, Because I know the evil that you will do to the sons of Israel. Their strongholds you will set on fire, their young men you will kill with the sword, and their little ones you will dash in pieces, and their women with child you will rip up. Then Hazael said, But what is your servant who is but a dog, that he should do this great thing? And Elisha answered, The Lord has shown me that you will be king over Aram. So he departed from Elisha and returned to his master, who said to him, What did Elisha say to you? And he answered, He told me that you would surely recover. And the following day he took the cover and dipped it in water and spread it on his face so that he died, and Hazael became king in his place. Again, this was promised to happen back in 1 Kings 19, but there are so many providential things being set up here. Hazael being appointed king, Hazael will go into battle at Ramoth-Gilead. Joram will go to fight against Hazael, be wounded in battle at the end of chapter 8. He'll go to Jezreel to be healed of his wounds where Jezebel is. Ahaziah, who is a grandson, king of Judah, grandson to Ahab, will go to Jezreel to meet with uh, Joram to kind of comfort him and visit with him. And it's there that Jehu will kill both the king of Israel, who is a son of Ahab, the king of Judah, who is a grandson of Ahab, and then Jezebel, wife of Ahab, who had been alive this whole time apparently. So begins judgment on the house of Ahab. So just the timing, kind of like the timing of the woman coming in when um, Gehazi was relating the events of Elisha's life. God's providence here, God in his sovereignty is able to accomplish his will, whatever it is. Other interesting thing about this is you can see very clearly Elisha had no pleasure in this appointment. And I think that gives us insight into the delay, right? Why did God delay after 1 Kings 19 when Elijah was the one told to appoint uh, Hazael king over Aram and Jehu, right? Well, it's because Elijah was, continue, was willing to continue in his ministry. It's because Elisha was willing to take up the mantle and continue in the spirit and power of his, of his master. And so God had these reasons to continue to strive to show mercy, but the time of mercy was over and the time was up. Notice as well how similar this is to things with Judas. There's a sense in verse 12 where it's almost like Elisha is urging Hazael on because of how inevitable and necessary this has become, right? Hazael is going to do violent things to the people of Israel, but we've gotten to the point where that is literally the only way where now God can salvage anything from his nation anymore. The only answer now is violence. Do you remember Judas in the Last Supper when Jesus looked at Judas and said, what you do, do quickly? almost like he's urging Judas on, because at that point, that's what had become necessary. The only answer to God's plan working, the only way to salvage anything at that point, was violence. And that's ultimately what our sin brings. The only answer to our sin, the only answer to our sin, is violence. Unthinkable, destructive abusive, disgusting violence. You look at the things that Elisha said that Hazael would do. Young men being killed with their sword, 
Little ones, which I'm assuming is infants, being thrown against rocks and their body parts literally exploding against the rocks. Women with children being ripped up and furring their wombs being torn open. And these are things that had become necessary in order to salvage anything from his nation. Do you think God enjoyed that? Do you think God was looking forward to that? Do you think Joram would have taken repentance more seriously after he would have seen these things happen? You know, the problem is that because of God's attempts at mercy, because of his attempt to show kindness, because that the method of repentance is we need to reflect on our hearts in genuineness and sincerity, and repentance is not something that can just be forced, we put God into the position where if, if mercy is not the method that works, the only thing left is wrath. So in, this, in the next section in chapter 9, Jehu is appointed king over Israel. And Elisha doesn't appoint Jehu directly. And I don't know if it's just, again, the grief of what this is all about to bring, the, the degree of violence this is eliciting, how disassociated Elisha wants to be with this, even though it's necessary. Look at chapter 9, verse 6. This is when um, Jehu is being appointed, just to kind of show what the purpose of that appointment was in chapter 9, verse 6. He arose and went into the house and poured the oil on his head, and that is Elisha's servant on Jehu's head. Um, and he said to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I have anointed you king over the people of the Lord, even over Israel. You shall strike the house of Ahab, your master, that I may avenge the blood of my servants, the prophets, and the blood of all the servants of the Lord at the hand of Jezebel. For the whole house of Ahab shall perish, and I will cut off from Ahab every male person, both bond and free in Israel. I will make the house of Ahab like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha, the son of Ahijah. The dogs shall eat Jezebel in the territory of Jezreel, and none shall bury her. Then he opened the door and fled. I'm going to summarize some things here just kind of generally. In the next section, like I mentioned, Joram and Ahaziah, the king of Israel and Judah, end up together at Jezreel while Jehu rushes in his chariot to the gates of the city. They come out to meet him in verse 21, and in verse 24, Jehu draws his bow at full strength and shoots Joram between the arms and kills him. Uh, Ahaziah is then chased, and he's also killed. But look at verse 25 through 26. just want to show you how the things that God had said to Elijah were like these lingering promises that were not secrets. Everybody knew about the things that God had pronounced in terms of the wrath that he would bring upon the house of Ahab. Look at verse 25. Then Jehu said to Bidkar's officer, take him, that is Joram, take him up and cast him into the property of the field of Naboth the Jezreelite. For I remember when you and I were riding together after Ahab his father, that the Lord laid this oracle against him. Surely I have seen yesterday the blood of Naboth and the blood of his sons, says the Lord, and I will repay you in this property, says the Lord. Now then, take and cast him into the property according to the word of the Lord. Look at verses 33 through 37. This is where Jezebel is finally killed. Um, verse 33, this is the... 
um, guards who are with Jezebel in this high tower where she mocks at Jehu. He said, throw her down. So they threw her down and some of her blood was sprinkled on the wall and on the horses and he trampled her underfoot. When he came in, he ate and drank and he said, see now to this cursed woman and bury her for she is a king's daughter. They went to bury her, but they found nothing more of her than the skull and the feet and the palms of her hands. Therefore, they returned and told him. And he said, this is the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant, Elijah the Tishbite, saying, in the property of Jezreel, the dog shall eat the flesh of Jezebel and the corpse of Jezebel will be as dung on the face of the field in the property of Jezreel. So they cannot say this is Jezebel. Look at chapter 10, verse 10. Even further, where the children of Ahab are all killed at once, they're beheaded and their heads are stacked up. Chapter 10, verse 10. Know, that, know, then that there shall, uh, know then that there shall fall to the earth nothing of the word of the Lord, which the Lord spoke concerning the house of Ahab, for the Lord has done what he spoke through his servant Elijah. So Jehu killed all who remained of the house of Ahab and Jezreel and all his great men and his acquaintance and his priests until he left him without survivor. Um, so Ahab's house is annihilated. And in verse 28, after Jehu then annihilates Ahab's household, he also obliterates the Baal worship that was in Israel and that plagued the nation. It says, thus Jehu eradicated Baal out of Israel. Something I want to focus on for this section really as a main point of emphasis is in, in the midst of all of these judgments, there's still this sense of such great wasted opportunity. You know, one thing that's consistent with the kings of Israel is they'll serve God, they'll do his will, so long as it serves their own violent ambitions. Do you remember in 2 Kings 3 when the king of Israel is marching against the Moabites? Oh, I'm sorry, Edom. He was marching against Edom. And he had an, a, another group of armies with him, Judah and, uh, and the Moabites with him. And they went against the Edomites and they ended up in a situation where they were without water. And Elisha was there and promised that if they uh, dug trenches in the ground, they'd be filled with water and they could annihilate the Edomites. And so long as that was the case and they were promised victory, they were willing to do very strange, very laborish things of faith just so long as it would grant them victory. Look at verse 29, similarly with Jehu, this man who showed such fervor for eradicating Baal worship, fervor for eradicating Ahab's house, fervor, fervor for God's promises that he would eradicate uh, Ahab's house. Look what it says in verse 29. However, as for the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel sin, from these Jehu did not depart. Even the golden calves that were at Bethel and that were at Dan. The Lord said to Jehu, because you have done well in executing what is right in my eyes and have done to the house of Ahab according to all that was in my heart, your sons of the fourth generation shall sit on the throne of Israel. But Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord, the God of Israel, with all his heart. He did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, which he made Israel sin. He did not take care of the root of the problem, right? And I think it's, it's interesting that God doesn't rebuke him for not following his law. It's more just kind of inserted as a narrative text. I want you to think like there's certain things that unless your heart is in the right position, you will not appropriately follow nor properly understand. Think about it with being very sick, right? 
that if you're sick, there's certain things that you just simply can't do until you're better. Um, just as an example, there's a girl that I knew in Minnesota at the Mayo Clinic. She had Lyme's disease, and they didn't know she had Lyme's disease when she was at the Mayo Clinic, and that's why they were there is because they had no idea what was going on. Her, her internal organs would shut down, her body would lock up, and they had to do like really painful, really hard things on her just to get it so that she could like function at all, use the bathroom and move her body, and basically just not die. And they were treating all of these symptoms without actually getting to the root of the problem or understanding what was causing all of these things. And so she was debilitated, right? Like she could do certain things, she could go certain places sometimes, but ultimately she was extremely limited. Eventually she went to Florida and they found out she had Lyme's disease and she was cured and she's living a normal life now. It's the same thing with God's law. Unless we get to the heart of the problem of our sin, so long as we're only tackling symptoms of sin or maybe like pieces of sin, we're not actually able to function in serving God or understanding his will. Think about the Pharisees, right? Think about the understanding the Pharisees had of God's word compared to Jesus' understanding of God's word. Think about the Pharisees' understanding of God's character compared to Jesus' understanding of that character. Both, in a sense, were zealous for God's word, right? And yet somehow their approach was so dramatically different. It's because one was serving God in complete genuineness of heart, complete liberty of heart. I think another example as an illustration can be something like assemblies. Sometimes in emphasizing how important it is to have fellowship with the saints and assemble, if you're not in the right condition of heart, you could easily think like, oh, it sounds like everybody's just kind of judging me if I'm not there and I just have to like attend all the time for some reason and people are going to think I'm sinning if I'm not there and show me no understanding and, and none of that's true. But if your heart's not in the right place, something like assembling and the beauty and the need and, and why we assemble, it becomes impossible to understand. It becomes impossible to see it in its right view and it becomes impossible to encourage you to assemble because you're always going to misunderstand why that's being emphasized because there's something deeper that has to change, right? And that's what we need to get better at as well, and me included, all of us, is being able to perceive the greater issue at hand so that we can address issues of the heart that are at the source of the needs that we have spiritually in our service to God. So Jehu did a good thing, but ultimately what God needed was even Jehu, like Ahab's house, to reflect on his own heart and to humble himself so that he would serve God's law not out of order but out of will. One verse I had as a reference for this was Hosea chapter 8, verse 12. Hosea spoke to the people of Israel, the northern tribe, very shortly after this, very shortly after this. Um, it was Jehu's great-grandson that Hosea would speak to, Jeroboam II. What Hosea would say is, although, and this is God speaking through Hosea, Although I would write 10,000 statutes to my people, they would be regarded as a strange thing. God is saying, it's worthless. I could, I could write thousands of laws for my people. It doesn't matter. They're not going to care about my law. They're not going to understand my law. They're not going to follow my law. And what God was doing is striving to tackle the deeper issue. So let's go to the last section. This is moving way forward now in chapter 13. Now we're in the time of Joash. This is Jehu's grandson. Remember he said, 
to the fourth generation, your sons will sit on the throne. This is Joash, who kind of like, kind of like uh, uh, Joram. Joash, what we'll see here, has a, a strange respect for Elisha, but please don't misunderstand. This is a wicked king. <laughs> He's a stubborn king, just like all the others. He's not, his, his favor towards Elisha is not the same as repentance. But, but that makes this almost more amazing. We'll try to briefly move through this to the conclusion of the lesson here. But this is remembering their source of life here with Elisha. Verse 14. When Elisha became sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over him and said, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. Just time out for a second. That's what Elisha said to Elijah in 2 Kings 2 when Elisha, Elijah was taken up in the fiery whirlwind. It's an acknowledgement of God's power being with the prophet. So this is a very good acknowledgement. He's saying like, ultimately the power of the nation, it resides with Elisha. So if Elisha is dying, it's almost like the power of God is going with him. So in verse uh, 15, Elisha said to him, take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow, put his hand on it. Then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands. He said, open the window toward the east. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And he said, the Lord's arrow of victory, even the arrow of victory over Aram, for you will defeat the Arameans at Aphek until you have destroyed them. Then he said, take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. And he struck it three times and stopped. So the man of God was angry with him and and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Aram until you have destroyed it. But now you shall strike Aram only three times. That's weird. (laughs) This is a really strange account that I think has some profound lessons, though. Just like everything in Elisha's life, there's so many accounts where there's just very unusual things, very little things that are done that carry these profound lessons with them. So I think it's interesting that Elisha takes this opportunity, and again, he's trying to bless the king of Israel and not just, you know, take the opportunity to let him know how depraved and sinful his condition is. It's just amazing how God manages to show such unwarranted kindness to people who deserve it so little. So these arrows, Elisha makes it very clear that these arrows are arrows that symbolize victory over the Arameans. After that's made as clear as possible, he tells him to pick up this bundle of arrows and hit it on the ground. He only does it three times, and apparently that was a mistake. And I think the idea of this is his victory would be based in his zeal for the Lord. Because if these arrows are arrows of victory and the Arameans have been your greatest enemy for decades and generations, they have been an enemy that has not gone away. If God tells you these symbolize victory, and he says, hit the ground. It's like, hit it over and over again. Don't stop, right? But because the king had such a small fervor for the Lord. Because he ultimately was still a stubborn king, he would still suffer for the hand of the Arameans and the victory would still be inadequate and incomplete. Did you know, in conflicts and difficulties that we have, did you know that you could have joy where you have sorrow? And that how God gives you joy will always seem disassociated from your trial. So like, for instance, these battles were predetermined now. They could fight as hard as they wanted to, but they were only going to make it so far, no matter what. 
It didn't matter how many forces they had. It didn't matter their battle strategy. This was now absolute and predetermined. And what determined the victory for people who may have not even known about this event in that battle was determined by some small, quiet event determined long before the battle and far outside of it, right? The choices that we quietly make in our hearts, the choices we make that determine our passion for God. When God tells us that there's something associated with his victory that he's giving us free liberty with, if we love God, we will take those principles as far as we possibly can principles of love toward the brethren, principles of hospitality, principles of words of kindness, principles of endurance and trials, principles of prayer, principles of praise, principles of leadership, principles of serving. If we have a passion for God, we recognize that as disassociated as all of those things may seem to whatever other troubles we're having in our life, those are actually the things that will determine the condition of our lives. God is seeking to give us abundant lives. But the method of how he does that is isolated to faith. And what determines that abundance will seem so disassociated from the urgency of so many other pressures and conflicts we experience. Finally, verse 20 and 21. Another very unusual account. Elisha died. They buried him. Now the bands of the Moabites would invade the land in the spring of the year and they... As they were burying a man, behold, they saw a marauding band, and they cast the man into the grave of Elisha. When the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood up his feet. That's the final resurrection in the Old Testament, by the way. Elijah, he initiated the first resurrection in the Old Testament. The only resurrections that ever take place in the Old Testament are Elijah and Elisha, and there's only three. One is the widow of Zarephath, her son, the beginning of Elijah's ministry. The second is the Shunammite woman, and this is the only other resurrection that ever happens in the entire Old Testament. And it's, it's definitely the most unusual, right? So what, what can we learn from this? For one, I think this shows how desperately God loved his people. That even though Elisha was dead, even when, as the king had said, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, the power of Israel, it's like, if you die, it's gone. No. Because the power was not Elisha. Elisha was simply a vessel carrying glory for an amount of time. Anyone can pick up the mantle. Anyone continue the work. And God, so long as the nation was there and existing, God was willing to bring life to the nation just as the king of Israel had given it back to the Shunammite woman in 2 Kings chapter 8. You know, when I see something like this, it, it should just make your hands drop and make you think, I want to serve that God. A God who shows such unfailing mercy, a God who never yields in seeking to give away his promises. The nation was doing nothing to warrant these opportunities. Nothing. But you know why this person could receive this? It's because he was dead. That's what the kings of Israel failed to see about themselves. That's what the Apostle Paul knew 
and knew for a certainty when he was confronted with Jesus on the road to Damascus. He knew that he was the chief of all sinners. He was finally able to embrace. It's not just that he needed to purify himself by the law of Moses, but that he was completely dead and consumed by the poison of sin. And it's when we understand how fully and completely we need to be delivered, we can finally be buried with Jesus and come into contact with his body in order to be raised back into life. Just like there was power in the bones of Elisha, there's power in the blood of Jesus. We need to die with Jesus in order to live with him. This is one of the clearest symbols of the gospel in the ministries of Elijah and Elisha. And it's a symbol that involves two dead men, one of, what, one of which gets up and walks out of the grave. The invitation is that you're invited now. God's mercies are still available. We've been living on borrowed time since the day we were born and even before that. And God is still extending graciously his hand of mercy if we'll just accept the call, see that we need to be delivered from our sin and its poison to walk in newness of life. If there's anything we can do for you, come forward at this time while we stand and sing the song of invitation.